0: Um, is my three kids, and you'll hear more about them this week. Here's the third thing I want you to know about me. When I was your age, actually, is anyone here going into their 8th grade year? 8th grade year, awesome, awesome. Hey, when I was going into the summer before my 8th grade year, I met someone. And it changed my whole life. And this is, sh- is going to sound so strange to some of your ears, Because for some of you, Christianity is a religion or a philosophy or a worldview or a set of rules. But it's none of those things. Here's what I want you to know. When I was going into my eighth grade summer, I met the resurrected Jesus. Like I met him. Like I encountered him in power and it changed my whole life. And again, for some of you, you think religion is just kind of this thing you do, or or this activity you participate in, or this place you go on Sunday. But here's what I want you to know from the very beginning of this week, that Christianity is not about a religion, a worldview, or a set of rules. Christianity is about a person. And that same Jesus who met me when I was going into my eighth grade year can meet you here this week. In fact, the spirit of that same Jesus is in this room right now. He's here, and he's present, and he wants to encounter you. He wants to meet you. Here's how it happened for me. Uh, I grew up in a Christian home. But it was a bit of an odd Christian home, and here's how I describe the dynamic. Um, This summer, summer of 23, my parents celebrated 40 years of marriage. Uh, And so they've been married for 40 years, which is remarkable, yeah. Um, But here's the wild thing about my folks for 40 years, they have never gone to the same church as each other. For 40 years. See, my dad is this Irish Catholic man, so he would go to mass every Sunday growing up. And my mom is this Dutch Presbyterian lady, and she would go to her Presbyterian church growing up. And so the question for young Brian Howard was never, will you go to church on Sunday? The question was always, which church will you go to? And here's what I did from a young age. If my beloved San Francisco 49ers were playing the early game, I would go to the early service with my dad, because that would wrap up, and then I'd be able to go to the start of the game. But if they were playing the later game, I would go to my mom's church because my mom's church, I kind of enjoyed the Sunday school a little more. And then come sixth grade, my mom's church started to have a youth group that had ping pong pong tables and donuts. So I decided I was a Presbyterian by sixth grade, and I started going to my mom's church. So the question for me all growing up was, which church are you going to go to? But then, summer before my eighth grade year, and, and listen, I'd grown up in church. I knew all the Bible stuff. I could tell you all the Bible characters and the stories and the books. I knew all the things. But it was an invitation at a camp just like this, right before I went into eighth grade. And the preacher just got up there and said, does anyone want to come to a relationship with Jesus? And I realized that my whole life, the question for me had been, which church are you going to go to? And I had never actually wrestled with the question, what are you going to do with Jesus? And this week, that's the question I want you to wrestle with. I want you to wrestle with the question of what you're going to do with Jesus. So here's what I know. Some of you are here, and you've never really been a part of church. It's kind of new to you. It's kind of different. You're kind of trying to get your feel of what you think of church and religion and God, and I'm so thrilled you're here. And above all else this week, my hope for you is that you would encounter the presence of God and that you would decide what to do with his son, Jesus. And then there's others of you who are here, and you grew up in church just like I did. You know all the songs. You know all the verses. But you know things about God you don't actually know God. And my hope for you this week is that you would come to know the God of the universe. So here's what I'm convinced of. And if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. I'm convinced that every single one of you is here on purpose and for a purpose. Meaning you might think you got signed up by your parents. You may have signed up early. You may have only signed up because there was a cute boy who was coming or a cute girl that you knew was going to be on the trip. You may have signed up for whatever reason you wanted to. But listen to me. The God of the universe has you here for a purpose. Meaning there's a specific thing that God wants to speak into your life and do in your life this week. You are here on purpose and for a purpose. And here's what I want you to know. That the way our God will accomplish his purpose in your life this week is the way God always accomplishes his purpose. You know how God always accomplishes his purpose? One thing. He speaks. He speaks. We worship and serve and believe in a God who speaks. At the very beginning he said, let there be light and the entire universe came into existence. And that same God wants to speak into your heart and mind today. And that's what I want you to see when we turn to the word. See, we believe in a God who speaks. And through speaking, he will accomplish the purpose that he brought you here for this week. And I want you to see that here in the book of Daniel. So again, Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. We'll just do a few verses tonight. Here's what it says. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, here's what I know happens for many of you. When you turn to the Bible, what happens, and you read little little verses like this, it can just look confusing and overwhelming because it's a bunch of names and a bunch of places you don't necessarily recognize. And I understand that. And I understand that because what happens for a lot of us is when we read the Bible, we just kind of get overwhelmed with names and places and times, and we're not really sure what to do with it. But here's what I want to remind you. All this verse is doing is giving us the context for the story we're about to read. When I say giving the context for the story, it'd be like me saying this. When I was in sixth grade, my family and I went to Disneyland. Now immediately in your mind, you know, okay, I'm in sixth grade. It's Brian's family, so it's mom, dad, maybe his brothers, and they're at Disneyland. Your mind is in the context of where I tell this story. The same thing is happening here. It's giving us a time, and it's giving us a place. Notice what it says here, in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, which you wouldn't know what this is until you start to research and look into it, but this is 589 BC. This is 600 years this story is taking place before Jesus is born, and 2,600 years before now. It's the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, king of Judah. So Judah is this place where God's people are. The capital is Jerusalem, so it's taking place in the ancient Middle East, 2,600 years ago, it's giving us the name of the people, it's giving us the place it happens, and it's giving us the time it happens. Now, here's why I think this is important, and here's why I'm lingering on this. Because I want you to know when you read the Bible, you are not reading something that's like a fairy tale. You're not reading a myth. You're not reading a legend. When you read the Bible, you're hearing the actual story of actual things that happened. And if you're skeptical about that, or you think the Bible's just a bunch of made-up myths, I want you to know that myths have a very specific structure. Myths go something like this. Fairy tales go something like this. Uh, A a long time ago in a far away kingdom, right? That's how a typical fairy tale begins. It's so long ago, it's so far away. Or see if you can fill in the blank on this fairy tale, the most modern myth of our age. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. That's a myth, right? It's not real. Why? It happened so long ago, no one can remember it. It happened so far away, no one can get to it. But that's not true of this story. This happened 2,600 years ago in written human history, meaning like human beings witnessed this and wrote it down. And it happened in a place you could go to. In fact, if you drove down the hill today, got to Los Angeles International Airport, jumped on a plane, you could fly to Tel Aviv and be in the place where this story happens by tomorrow. It's a place you can go to. And here's why this matters. The Bible is a story of real people in the real world dealing with real problems. And this week, as we go through the story of Daniel, we're going to see a real person encountering real problems and trusting in a real, very real God who is near to him. See, so, so here's the point of this week. The point of this week is not just to look at Daniel as some like storybook character and be like, live a life like Daniel lived. Because you don't have the same circumstances Daniel had. You don't have the same problems he had. You don't have the same friends he had. The point is not to live the way Daniel lived. The point is to trust the same God Daniel trusted. That's the invitation for us this week. In a very real place with very real problems in this very real circumstance, it says this in chapter 1, verse 1, in the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand along with some of the articles from the temple of God. So let me set up the whole week this way. Our story this week begins with a war, like most stories do. Most stories begin with some kind of conflict, some sort of battle, some sort of war. And here's the war. There's two sides. On one side, you've got the kingdom of Judah. Their capital is Jerusalem. The people of Judah are God's covenant people. They're the people that God especially loves in this world. On the other side, you've got the empire of Babylon, the Babylonians, led by their king, whose name is Nebuchadnezzar. You're going to hear that name a lot, Nebuchadnezzar. You've got Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians, and the Babylonian empire is wicked and evil and awful. They are pagan and terrible. They make people suffer. They kill people. They slaughter women and children. They destroy entire nations. And so here's the battle. You've got Judah, God's holy, chosen, and beloved people living in Jerusalem, and you've got Babylon, the wicked, evil nation that sets itself up against God. You've got two people fighting in the battle. And here's my question for you. Who wins this battle? And the answer is not Judah. The answer is Babylon. And here's what's so fascinating. Look at this. Look at this. Look at verse 2. Notice what it says. It doesn't just say there's a battle between Babylon and Judah and Babylon happens to win. It actually says in verse 2, the Lord delivered him. In other words, there was a battle between God's people and the wicked, evil, pagan nation. And here's what's so crazy. Look at me, look at me. God picks a winner. And the wild thing is if you said, oh, God picks a winner in this battle, who do you think it's going to be? You would pick Judah. But that's not what God does. God looks at his chosen, holy, beloved people and the empire of Babylon, and he picks a winner, and he picks Babylon. He picks Babylon, which is this fascinating thing. Then, in the course of human history, God doesn't just kind of stand back and say, whatever happens, happens. God is actually intervening and working in human history. And in this circumstance, rather than choosing the people of God, his chosen covenant holy people, he chooses Babylon. And here's my question for you. Why would God do that? Why wouldn't he pick his people? If God's going to pick a winner in this war, why doesn't he pick his people rather than Babylon? And I want to give you the answer to that question. In fact, I want to give you the answer to the question, why does God do anything? In your life, in this world, in all of history, there is one answer to why God does anything he does. If you've ever wondered, why does God do blank? I'm going to give you the answer to that question. And here it is out of Psalm 115, verse 3. This is going to come up over and over again. I want you to jot this verse down. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Here's what I want you to know about our God. The reason he does anything he wants to do is because God is in heaven, he has all authority, and the reason he does what he wants is because it makes him happy. God does whatever he wants. God is in heaven, he does whatever pleases him, and in this moment he had the choice of making Judah win or Babylon win, and God chose, because of his great pleasure, Babylon. Now, if you're anything like me, that throws you off. Because you're like, well, why would God do that? And the answer is because God is in heaven, and he does whatever pleases him. And this brings us to one of the most fundamental things about God that you need to know this week. See, I want to remind you in this text, again, look at verse 2 in Daniel 1. Notice it doesn't say God delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. It says the Lord delivered him into his hand. In your Bible, when you see in the Old Testament, the word Lord, capitalized, capital L, you know that you are looking at a very specific and very special Hebrew word. And that very specific and very special Hebrew word is the word Yahweh. Yahweh. Yahweh is the name of our God. God's name isn't God, like I need you to know that. God's name, as he reveals himself, he says, hi, my name is Yahweh. And Yahweh, like every other ancient world, has a meaning. So when we call God Yahweh, Yahweh means something in the Hebrew language. And here's what it means. Yahweh means I am who I am. I want you to write that down if you're taking notes. God's name means I am who I am. And here's why this is significant for us. The very fundamental, like the very base level, first thing we need to understand about our God is simply this. That God is who he is and you don't get a vote you don't get any input. You don't get to decide what God is like. All the time I talk to students who are like, well, if I were God, I wouldn't do this. It's like, cool, nice opinion. That doesn't affect who God is at all. Sometimes people are like, well, God would never judge me for my sin, or God would want me to be happy, or God would this, and we just speculate about God. But here's what I need you to know about God. God is who he is, and you get no vote. You get no input. Here are your only options with God. You get two options when it comes to Yahweh, the God who is who is. Write this down. Number one, you can receive him. You can receive him for who he is. You can say, God is God, he is who he is, and I'm just going to receive him for all of who he is. Even when it makes me uncomfortable, even when it makes me feel uneasy, even when it convicts me, even when it challenges me, God is who he is. Number one, you can receive him. Number two, you can reject him. Like, I just need you to know from the very first night of camp this week that no one's going to force you to accept God this week. No one's going to manipulate you. No one's going to force you. No one's going to force your hand or make sure you do anything. You are free this week to reject God. You can receive him. You can reject him. But here's what you cannot do. You cannot reshape God into your own image. You cannot look at God and say, if God were God, he would act exactly like I act. No, God is who he is, and you do not get a vote. Our story begins with God picking a winner in a war. And he doesn't pick his covenant, chosen, holy people. He chooses Babylon. And then verse 2 says this. It says, then he carried these things off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put it in the treasure of the house of his God. So again, there's a war between Judah and Babylon. God, from his heavens, because he does what he pleases, picks a winner. He picks Babylon. Babylon destroys Jerusalem, and then it says this here, that he carries these things off, these treasures of the temple, off to Babylonia, off to the city of Babylon. Now, there's an interesting word play going on here where there's these treasures that are taken away, but there's also people who are taken away. See, what the Babylonians figured out early on was this. When they conquered a people and destroyed their nation, they couldn't just leave a bunch of people there. They didn't want to just kill everyone. So instead what they did was they would take everyone they conquered and they would make them leave the place they were and move to Babylon so that they could learn what Babylon was all about. So I want to show you what this looks like. Look at this map right here. This is Jerusalem. This is where Judah is. This is where the people of God were conquered. This war happens and Judah loses. Babylon wins. And they get exiled. They have to march all the way across, all the way over here to Babylon. That's what the exile is, and that's the whole theme of this week. This whole island theme, the idea is what it looks like to be exiled in a place like Babylon. That's what we're talking about this week. Now, you may ask me, why didn't they just go straight across? Looks like a pretty long way around. The answer is that this place right here is called the Arabian Desert. At a minimum, the temperature in the Arabian Desert on a cool day is 109 degrees So even in the ancient world, they're like, we ain't got time for that. March them up and around the river and bring them into Babylon. And that's exactly what they did. Years ago, an artist tried to render what it may have looked like for Jerusalem to be burning and for these people to be marching out. I'll show you this photo. Or this, it's not a photo. Uh, It's a painting. (laughs) But here's Jerusalem. And it's on fire. Why? Because the Babylonians destroyed it. Why? Because God picked them to win. And then all of the Israelites had to take everything that belonged to them and march hundreds of miles to Babylon. That is what this entire story this week is all about. There's a war between Babylon and Judah. God from heaven, because he is who he is, picks a winner, he picks Babylon. And the people of Judah are exiled. They are marched with all their possessions to live in a new city, in a new place. They are forced to live in exile. Now here's what I want you to know about exile. Exile is a place that is at least three things. And I want you to write these three things down. They're going to come up over and over and over this week. Exile is three things. Exile is a place that is uncomfortable. Exile is a place that is unfriendly. And exile is a place that is uncompromising. It is uncomfortable. It is unfriendly. It is uncompromising. It is uncomfortable. It is unfriendly. It's uncompromising. Let's break this down. It is uncomfortable. The people of Judah have to go to Babylon And they have to speak a different language and wear different clothes and eat different kinds of foods. And there's a different culture and there's a different government and there's different architecture. Everything's uncomfortable. It's different. It's not the place they're used to. It's a place that's uncomfortable. We'll learn very quickly in this story it's a place that's unfriendly. It's not like the Babylonians conquered the people of Judah and said, Come on in. Build your house. Plant a garden. We'll have you over for dinner. We'll do a barbecue. That's not how this story goes at all. The people of Judah are hated immediately. People are suspicious of them. They want to kill them. They look to kill the Jewish people who have been exiled to Babylon. It's a place that's uncomfortable. It's a place that's unfriendly. And the last one it is a place that is uncompromising. Here's what that means. The people of Babylon were not interested in your religion. What they wanted you to do is mold your religion into theirs to start going the way they wanted to go. What they are most interested in is that you would come to Babylon and learn the ways of Babylon. That you would learn the language, that you would learn the religion, that you would learn the customs, and that you would become a part of their thing. It wasn't that they would just kind of tolerate you and accept you, and why don't you just bring some stuff to the table. No, no, no. Babylon had one rule, and that's that you become exactly like us. The people of God are exiled from Jerusalem all the way to Babylon. They are now living in a place that is uncomfortable, it is unfriendly, And it is uncompromising. And here's the question the people of God had to wrestle with for all their time in exile. How do we stay faithful to the Lord? How do we stay faithful to Yahweh? How do we stay faithful to our God in a place that is unfriendly, uncompromising, and uncomfortable? How do we do that? And here's what's so beautiful for us this week. The scriptures have a lot of answers to this. Like the Bible is filled with answers to the question of how, when we're living in a place that's uncomfortable, unfriendly, uncompromising, how do we stay faithful to Yahweh? How do we stay faithful to God? And, and this week we're going to be looking at a New Testament book um, from time to time, and that would be from the book of 1 Peter. So if you want to flip there, you can. If not, I'll just read it for you here. Uh, but 1 Peter is going to give us an answer to this question and begin to set up our week. So in closing, I just want to give you this from 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Peter... An apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Binthia. So in other words, here's the setting. Peter is writing a letter. He's one of the first Christians. And he's writing it to people in these five cities, which is modern-day Turkey, if you know where Turkey is. And he's writing to these people. And here's what he calls them. Look in your text. It says, to God's elect, meaning God picked you. Like, can I just say that to someone who needs to hear that tonight? Like, I need you to understand That you didn't just come here. God didn't just accept you. God wanted you before you wanted him. Like, that's the good news of the gospel. The good news of God and the good news of Jesus is that God wanted you. God loved you. God picked you. God looked at everyone and said, I want that man and that woman in my family. But then here's what's so wonderful. It says to God's elect, exiles. In other words, Peter, writing in the first century, looks at Christians spread out all throughout the region and says, just like the people of Judah were exiles in Babylon, You, too, are exiles. And here's what we understand this to mean, that we as Christians, anyone in this room who calls themselves a Christian, and I don't assume that's all of you, but anyone in here who calls themselves a Christian, you are also an exile. You are an exile because your home is not this place, your home is in heaven. And as an exile, you are living in a place that is three things. You are living in a place that is uncomfortable. You are living in a place that is unfriendly. You are living in a place that is uncomfortable compromising, uncomfortable. Here's what I need you to know. If you are a Christian and you are perfectly comfortable with the culture of the United States of America, with the culture at your school, with the culture in this world, with pop culture, with music, with movies, with television shows, if you're perfectly comfortable with the world, there's something wildly wrong with your faith. You as a Christian should look at the music of the world, the movies of the world, The way people talk, the way people spend their money, the way people treat people, the way people talk about their mom and dad, the way people live in this world, and there should be some some discomfort. There should be a part of you that says, I don't perfectly fit this world. If you've ever felt like you don't fit in perfectly in this world, good news, you don't, and that means you're being faithful. You are living in a place that's uncomfortable. You are living in a place that's unfriendly. Like, I just need to be clear about this. If you are a Christian, there are people in this world who hate you just because you're a Christian. There are. There are people who hate you. They think you are narrow-minded and bigoted and small and backwards and stupid and silly for believing in God. There are people who will look at you and they will hate you for no other reason than you decide to follow Jesus. See, a lot of Christians think if we just follow Jesus right, everyone will love us. But the Bible teaches the exact opposite. The Bible teaches that if you follow Jesus right, everyone will hate you. And so, we live in a place that's unfriendly. We live in a place where people mock and belittle you for being a Christian. They give you a hard time for going to Jesus camp this week. They laugh at you. They mock you. They look down on you. It's a place that's uncomfortable. It's a place that's unfriendly. And it is a place that is uncompromising. When I say the culture is uncompromising, I mean this. I mean that we live in a culture and in a time where if you don't believe all the right things all at once, you are canceled, cast out, ignored, belittled, mocked, and shamed. We live in a time and we live in a culture where if you just say, hey, I don't agree with everything you say, I don't agree with everything you say on whatever the hot topic is of the day. People get angry. Notice they're not wanting to compromise with you. They are uncompromising about their culture. And again, Peter looks at us and says, you are exiles. Just like those people in Babylon, you are exiles. And so the question for us this week is this. How do we stay faithful to Yahweh? How do we stay faithful to Jesus, his son? How do we stay faithful to God in the midst of a culture that has turned its back on God? And here's what Peter goes on to say. He says, you who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. So... So here's what he says, again, you've been chosen, like God picked you, God wanted you, God sees you, God knows you, according to the foreknowledge of God who's already aware of what's going on in your life, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and then here's what it says, you can underline this, to be obedient to Jesus Christ. See, the question we're asking this week is how do you stay faithful to Yahweh, how do you stay faithful to God in the midst of a culture that is uncompromising and uncomfortable and unfriendly? And the first answer to that question is found right here in Peter that you have been called to be obedient to Jesus Christ. Here's what I want to say about obedience. Obedience is the singular way that you avoid getting caught up in the winds of culture, that you avoid compromising and becoming just part of the culture all around you. Like, let me put it to you this way. I want to talk about two types of sea creatures. Two types of sea creatures. Here's the first. The first is the jellyfish. Now, jellyfish... (laughs) It's kind of interesting, but there's not much cool about it. The jellyfish just kind of exists. It's not inspiring. It's not stunning. And here's the thing you need to know about the jellyfish. The jellyfish doesn't actually swim. It floats on the tide. And if the tide goes this way, you know where the jellyfish goes? This way if the tide goes out, you know, the jellyfish goes this way. And if food comes to the jellyfish, he'll try to eat it and, and they will try to consume it. But they don't really go anywhere. They just kind of float back and forth with the tide. And wherever the tide goes, they go. Because they're a jellyfish and there's nothing spectacular or interesting about their life. And you know what the tragedy is? Some of you are jellyfish. You know what the tragedy is? Shh. Some of you spend your entire life just drifting back and forth with the culture. So, if everyone's wearing these clothes, you wear these clothes. And if everyone's talking this way, you talk this way. And if everyone's listening to this music, you just listen to this music. And if everyone's treating their parents this way, you do it. And if everyone's talking this way, you do it. You just roll with whatever everyone else is doing. Your entire life has just been spent copying and mimicking everyone around you. And it's a tragedy. Because there's nothing inspiring about a life where you just kind of wander around and do what everyone else is doing. Some of you have lived your entire life never saying, no, I'm not going to do that. You just roll with the tide. You roll with the culture. You roll with what everyone else is doing. And if everyone else believes something, you believe it. And if they change their mind five minutes later, you change your mind five minutes later. You're a jellyfish. And that is not what you have been invited to be. By the power of God in you, you can be something different. Let me give you a different animal that you want to be, and that is this animal of the dolphin. That's what you're looking to be. Now, dolphins are cool, and you think, like, dolphins are awesome, but here's what you need to know. Dolphins decide where they want to go. Dolphins set a direction. Dolphins know where they're going. They choose where they're going, and if the tide's going this way and they're going that way, well, it'll just boost them. But if the tide's going this way and they want to go this way, they decide to go that direction. And you know how dolphins can do this? The reason dolphins can do this is because dolphins actually have a different skill than jellyfish have. See, you and I see dolphins up on the surface and we're like, oh, look, it's a dolphin. And we take a picture and we post it and it's horrible, okay? But here's what dolphins can do. The reason dolphins don't just roll with the tide anywhere the tide goes is because dolphins actually go deep under the water. And if you want to be able to set your direction, you actually have to get deep. If you just stay up on the surface, if you just stay with the tide up on the surface, you'll never set your direction. That's what dolphins do. And if you want to know what depth looks like, if you want to be a dolphin and not a jellyfish, depth in the Christian life does not come through information. Depth comes through obedience. Write this down. I do not become deep through information I become deep through obedience, through obeying what Christ has to say, through listening to God and doing what he says. I don't want you to be a jellyfish, and if some of you have rolled into camp and you realize, that is me. I just kind of float along, I just kind of do what everyone else is doing. Wherever the tide takes me, I just kind of go. This week you have an invitation to live a different kind of life, where you're not a jellyfish, you're a dolphin who goes deep through obedience, sets your direction, And goes from there. It says in verse 3, praise be to the God of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the whole point of you being at camp, by the way. Like tomorrow morning we'll do our first set of worship, but we're already praising him. Anytime you set your heart and attention on God and think about how great he is and pray to him and consider him. And actually think about what it means for him to be God in your life. That's worship. That's what we do this week. We praise him. And it says in verse 3, in his great mercy. If you have a Bible with you, circle those words. His great mercy. Underline it. Highlight it. Here's why. Um, If you want to be the type of individual who is faithful to God in the midst of a world that isn't, who stays faithful to God when everyone else has turned their back on God, if you want to do it, you have to start with a proper view of God. And my concern for a lot of you is you do not have a proper view of God. You sort of internalized a view of God that you think is right and feels right to you, but it's not actually the God who exists, the God of the Bible, the God whose name is Yahweh. Like, here's how I think some of you see God. So growing up, uh, I was a fan of the San Francisco 49ers, as I already mentioned. Uh, And part of the reason, I know, I'm sorry, we can pray later, Um, but um, but here's what happened. Uh, My family, since the 1970s, had season tickets to the 49ers. So on Sundays when they were at home, I would go with my dad to the San Francisco 49ers games. And here's the thing about season tickets. When you have season tickets, you always end up sitting near the same people because other people have season tickets too. And so we would go to the games and we'd sit down. The game would start. The Niners would do something. They'd score. They'd do something wonderful. And we'd stand up and we'd cheer with 60,000 other people in the stadium. But then here's what happened. Behind us and one seat to the left, there was an older gentleman. And he loved the 49ers, and he loved being at the game, but he had this problem. Every time everyone would stand to see what happens, he couldn't stand up fast enough because he was a little bit older, and he struggled just a little bit, so he would try to get up, but he couldn't. And after a while, every game, he'd get frustrated. And when we'd stand to cheer, I will never forget this. These words are drilled into my brain. We would stand to cheer, and he'd go, down in front. (sighs) I have chills even saying that. It just is so stuck. It's like this thing from childhood. Down in front. And this old man is yelling at me. And so what would happen is actually the amazing thing would happen in the game. We'd score a touchdown and I'd stand, and that got sat down back. I just I just didn't want him yelling at me anymore. I just got like so aware of his anger, so aware of his impatience that every time he would yell, I would kind of crouch down because I didn't want to hear it. And, and then my, my family and I started referring to this guy affectionately as grumpy old guy. Um, and, and and he was probably the nicest guy, but he was a little grumpy. And he was a little old. And and, and here's what I wonder. I wonder if some of you think of God as grumpy old guy. In fact, I'm certain some of you do. Some of you think God is just this grumpy old guy on your shoulder. And every time you make a mistake or do something wrong, he goes, down in front. Stop doing that. You're lousy. You're no good. You'll never measure up. You're never anything. You're nothing. I don't care about you. I hate you. But here's what I want to remind you of. I had you circle, underline, or highlight these words. How does this scripture describe God? That God is filled with great mercy. I want you to know that the God in heaven who is here, present in this room, the God I want you to encounter is not grumpy old guy. He is filled with mercy, filled with compassion, filled with grace. He loves you. He even likes you. And he looks upon you, not filled with contempt, with compassion and patience. He is love. He is love. He is grace. He is mercy. He is kindness. That's the God we're going to talk about this week. So if you've come in somehow thinking about God as this grumpy old guy who's just mad at you all the time, I want you to know there's a God who loves you. In fact, here's how this God is described in the scriptures. The Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, and steadfast faithfulness. Here's the final verse we'll look at tonight, verse 3. It says, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Here's what Peter's gonna tell us. You are living in exile. You are living in a place that is uncomfortable. That is un... That is un... You are living in this place. You need to have a right view of God. You need to walk in obedience. But ultimately what sustains us through that time is this hope. Peter's gonna talk about a hope here, and he's gonna talk about a hope that can never perish or spoil or fade. In other words, it's a hope that can never be taken away from you. It is a hope that no matter what happens in this world, nothing can take it away from you, nothing can change it, nothing can possibly rattle that hope. And here's what I'm convinced of. There are millions of students in this world, maybe even some of you, who have no idea what that kind of hope is like because you have put your hope in the small shallow fleeting things of this world like here's the hope for some of you here's how some of you envision your life when you think man life is hard I'm in middle school I'm in high school stuff is hard in my family it's hard in my life I'm struggling with friends I'm struggling with things here's how some of you build the hope of your life you have a plan and here's your plan man I'm in middle school right now but someday I'll be in high school And when I'm in high school, I'm going to make sure to get good grades and join all the clubs and do all the things because once I graduate high school, I'm going to get into the right college. And in college, I'm going to get good grades, I'm going to have to make the right connections and get good letters of recommendation so I can get into the right grad school. And then once I get into the right grad school, I'm going to get a killer degree so that I can go make a ton of money. I'm going to get an awesome job after grad school and then I'm going to make a ton of money and with that ton of money, I'm going to become really attractive and I'm going to marry a beautiful spouse. I'm going to marry just a wonderful spouse. That spouse and I are going to have children. we're going to live in a house with a white picket fence, we're going to have three cars, three cars, one for her, one for him, and one for us, right, that's what we're going to do, and then I'm going to work, and we're going to take wonderful vacations, and we're going to build a wonderful life, and we're going to have nice shoes, and nice clothes, and a nice house, and it's all going to be wonderful, then I'm going to retire a little bit early, I'm going to play golf for 10 years, and then I'm going to die, and here's what you've done, Right here as a teenager, you have this whole plan for your life. Here's my hope. Good school, good grades, good college, good job, good spouse, good kids, good house, good car. Everything's good. And here's the problem with your little plan. The problem with your little plan is if one thing goes wrong somewhere along the way, your whole plan fails. If you don't get into college, if you lose your job, if your spouse gets sick and gets cancer and dies young, if you get sick and get cancer and die young, shh. Like like your plan doesn't work. If something goes wrong, if anything goes wrong in your plan, everything falls apart. Your plan is a house of cards. Your your plan is this soft thing that can collapse in an instant. Some of you have this whole plan for your life, and that's your hope for your future, that I'm going to do all of these things, and everything's going to go perfectly. And I just beg you to ask any adult in this room if their life has gone perfectly, if their life has gone exactly the way they thought it would when they were 14 years old. So here's what I know. Your plan, your idea of a good life, The whole American dream you've built up. Listen, I love my country, but here's what I want you to know. The American dream is not your hope. The American dream is not your hope. I want you to write this down. Your hope is in heaven. Your hope is in heaven. That is the only hope you have that will not spoil, perish, or fade. It is the only hope you have that no matter what happens to you, whether you get beat up or thrown in jail or fired from a job or murdered, there is nothing that can take that hope from you. That's how serious this hope is. And when I say heaven, here's what happens in a lot of your minds. You've been so shaped by cartoons that what you think is heaven is when you die, and then you float up to the clouds, and you have wings and a harp and a halo, and you sing songs for all of eternity. And some of you are like, honestly, Brian, that doesn't sound very fun. And I'm with you. That doesn't sound fun at all. And that's why the best thing I can tell you is that's not how the Bible describes heaven. Can I tell you how the Bible describes heaven? Write down these three words. Write down. Number one. Heaven is about the return of the king. Your hope is in the return of Jesus. Your hope is in the fact that Jesus Christ will return in glory to judge the living and the dead. Your hope is that one day Jesus will crack the sky and every eye will see him and every tongue will confess him, Lord, and every knee will bow and proclaim his king. There is coming a day where Jesus returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. Number one, the return of the king. Number two is the resurrection of the body. Like, some people think heaven is just like, you die, they bury you in the ground, and your soul floats away for all of eternity, but it's actually so much better than that. Here's what we believe as Christians. Jesus died, they put him in the tomb, and then three days later, he, grew, he raised up from the tomb, physically, literally, bodily, eternally, and gloriously. He literally got up out of the grave with a physical body that he has forever. And child of God, that is your future too. There will come a day where you die, and they body, bury your body in the ground. But when Jesus returns, your body is literally going to get up out of the ground. You know why that's so cool? Because many years ago, I had to bury my grandmother. I had to do her funeral service. And I loved her, and she loved me, and she loved Jesus. And you know what the great news of the resurrection is? One day, Jesus is going to return. He's going to raise my body. He's going to raise her body. And I'm going to get to hug her neck again in heaven. Like, that's what's actually coming. Your hope is not in the fleeting things of this world. It's in the return of the king. It's in the resurrection of the body, and here's the final one, in the restoration of all things. Do you know that God's not just going to kind of like raise you up and be like, sorry about all the bad stuff that happened. No, God's actually going to reverse all of the evil and the wickedness of this world. So much so that the end of the Bible says there will be no tears for all of eternity. I mean, no one's ever going to cry again. Why? Because all the bad things are going to come untrue. God is going to restore and redeem and resurrect this entire earth. That's your hope. Your hope is in the return of the king, the resurrection of the body, and the restoration of all things. That is something that will never spoil or perish or fade. This silly life plan you have where everything's going to go perfect, and you're going to be rich and famous and comfortable and happy, and everything's going to go great. It is silly. It is a house of cards. It will fall apart, but I need you to know, you put your hope in heaven, it can never be taken from you. There is no one who can take it. There's no one who can touch it. There is nothing in this world that can take that from you. So here's my hope. My hope this week is that you would reorient your hope toward heaven. I believe God has you here on purpose and for a purpose, meaning God specifically has you here for a reason. And I think for some of you, it's because your hope has been in the small, silly things of this world. And there's a God who says you are in exile and you are any place that is not your home, but your home is heaven. And when you put your confidence in that, you are filled with peace, you are filled with joy, you are filled with purpose, and you live the life that God has called you to. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for tonight and thank you for the opportunity to look at your word. I pray for these students this week. I pray that they would have an encounter with the resurrected Jesus Christ. I pray for the young lady who's far from you right now. She might not even know it. God, come meet her in power this week. I pray for the young man who's just kind of doing his own thing, living his own life. God, I pray the hound of heaven on him. I pray that you would meet him in power in such a way that is undeniable. God, would you raise dead bones to life? Would you renew faith? Would you stir our heart and affection for Jesus? And may you help us put our hope in heaven above all things. So, God, you are who you are. We trust you in the midst of it. God, may you meet us here in power this week. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said? Amen. Amen.